0: Hello everyone and welcome to Northern Bibliosphere, a new podcast series taking you on a literary journey across the north of Scotland. I'm Freddie and each episode will be going together through a different chapter of book culture across this incredible region. We will be chatting to local writers about their work, browsing bookshops and discovering events and initiatives from the local literary scene. Our guest this week is writer, drama and English teacher and puppetry enthusiast Barbara Henderson. Her main works include Scottish historical and eco-fiction for children such as Fur for Luck, Punch, Wilderness Wars and The Siege of Kerlaverock, for which she recently won a Young Kills Award from the Historical Association. Her most recent publication, however, is Scottish by Inclination, a nonfiction book which ties together the lives of European immigrants who made Scotland their home, among which is her own story. So let's hear more from Barbara. Hello Barbara, how are you doing? Welcome to Northern Bibiosphere. How's everything with you?
1: Hi, uh, yeah, great. Thank you very much, Federica. It's uh, really a big honour to be here and to um, to answer some of your questions. Can't wait to chat to you about books and highlands.
0: No, that's great. I'm really, really happy to finally see you face to face as well. Uh, I wanted to ask you um, a bit about, well, your starts in Scotland, but it's also something that is very much related to your latest book so maybe we can start with uh, your latest book which is cutting by inclination in which you kind of tell about your start in Scotland um and also well why you came here so um yes yeah, to tell tell us a bit about that for you from your background sure
1: no problem uh, so I was born in Germany and I grew up there and I went to school in Germany and um, when I was 19 and left school I um, had wanted to go to university so I came to Scotland to study in Edinburgh and uh, I signed up for a degree in English language and I um, also chose German actually as a as a side course because then I thought, well, I would be able to uh, hopefully uh, take care of one side of my degree relatively easily. Um, but English literature was really where my passion lay at. So I, I did. Um, do that as my third course. And, and I mean, that was definitely what really grabbed me. So um, my German was ditched after at the first opportunity. I then um, carried on with a joint degree in English language and English literature. And um, I substituted a lot of my English literature for Scottish literature, which was utterly new to me at the time. And you can imagine if you've been learning English at a high school in Germany, and all of a sudden, presented with Robert Burns or, um, you know, Henryson, <laughs> you know, it was quite a talent, um, but I absolutely loved it. So I had um, my degree in Edinburgh, I met my husband, I got married, and um, I did my teacher training there as well. And then uh, I was ready, I suppose, to enter the big wide world. And um, I began to teach in Fife, I taught English at a high school and drama because I had a lot of drama in my degree. And um, I'm still working as a drama teacher now alongside writing. And um, I've got my fingers in a handful of little literary pies, if you imagine. And so I... um, I'm involved in a, in a few groups, including the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. Um, I run a little group for that in the Highlands. Um, I'm one of the team behind the Writers Hub in Inverness, which is a recent uh, new development, uh, you know, protected space to write on a Thursday morning. So I've just come from there, actually. And... Um, yeah, I write a little column for Highland News and Media and um, that's usually about books or the literary world around here. So uh, that's me.
0: Just a few projects going on, just a couple there.
1: <laughs> that's <laughs> right. So
0: many things. No, that's great. I think that mm-hmm. is quite fascinating. Like, Um, how you came from, again, a background in a native language that is not English and came here and Mm. started writing in English and found your voice in English. So can I just ask you, how? what's your relationship with English um, developing as a writer? And also, what's your relationship with German? Do you still write in German? How how does that work? Did you start writing in German or did you start English was the one that kicked off
1: no I mean I've always written like as a teenager as a child I was really into puppetry in Germany puppetry is quite big I think in Italy as well and um, so I loved uh, puppetry as I grew up and uh, it was one of the, the the first big loves of my life was puppetry and then um, I remember even as a child as a teenager scripting uh, puppet plays and so on writing stories so that kind of side of me was always there and I think as a teenager I really wanted to be a journalist actually That was what I thought I would, I would become a writer, um, but for, um, you know, some kind of publication. And um, I suppose I just got really dragged into the literature side of it. You know, stories were what really fired me up. And um, so, you know, when I came to the end of my degree, um, I suppose I had spent four years hiding my German side, if you like. Um, You know, I was studying English literature. I was studying scottish literature i was writing essays i was trying to then um, be a credible teacher of english in high school you know so what would parents say if i made it very obvious that i was german you know i i felt a little bit insecure i suppose about my my german-ness and my german language and um so i sort of i tried quite hard i suppose to to lose my accent to build up my vocabulary and to to hopefully pass for um you know if not a native Scot then the next best thing. So of course it helped a lot that I got married and acquired a Scottish surname. So uh, I'm called Henderson now and not Haas anymore, which would have been more of a giveaway. Um, so yeah, but I've never really. I, I suppose you're quite right. I didn't f- find my voice in German, whereas in English, um. I had a lot of hesitancy. I wasn't sure whether I could write in English and after all, who would want to publish um, a a native German in English. Um, The the same question really was who would want to hire a German as an English teacher in a high school. You know what I mean? And, And the thing is, these things are possible. You know, there is actually no reason why not. And uh, there's a chapter in Scottish by inclination where I do talk about that. One of my lecturers who was very inspiring and he, um, he was in charge of the English language course that I was doing. And um, when I visited him to sort of say thanks and goodbye at the end of my degree, um, he said, so what are you gonna do? And I said, well, I was thinking about teaching, but uh, I don't know, I don't know. And he said, why, why don't you know? I said, well, I'm German, so, you know, i can't really be an english teacher here can i and he said why not why ever not and he was genuinely shocked at this idea that somehow there could be a barrier you know um and uh, that sort of expression has really stayed with me i still remember it as i remember the wide eyes and the wide open mouth and the, the sort of shock in his voice of like what do you mean you can't do it you know of course you can do it and um that was, that was a helpful, very enabling thing to say and uh, it's really stuck with me. And uh, actually after, um, when did I graduate? In 1995, four, five, um, I actually recently emailed him. I hadn't had any contact with him or heard anything of him. And I recently emailed him just to tell him that uh, that, that very uh, expression really resonated with me and, and became a bit of a motto and that I've now written a book and it's got him in it. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so I suppose it took that, um, it took a few years for me to feel, you know, can I be a writer in English? You know, actually, why not? Why ever not? And um, so I gave it a go. And I remember writing one short story and that was it, you know, one shot. And um, I sent it in for a competition and I won it. And I was absolutely gobsmacked because I I just couldn't believe it. And um, just for balance, I'd like to make very clear that I've written, I've written lots and lots of stories since then and entered them for millions of competition and hardly ever win anything. So um, it was a one-off, but it gave me the confidence to, um, to maybe believe in myself a little bit more. Um, so actually following that, win, I kind of made a New Year's resolution and uh, said, right, okay, this year I'm going to write a novel for children, because really that's where my heart was. You know, I wanted to write for young people. You know, it's children's books that made me a reader and um, I would not be a reader without some of the stories that really captured my imagination when I was ready to just give myself over to them. And um, yeah, so that's what I wanted. And I I wrote a very average novel that year (laughs) and I sent it away to a handful of people and got some mixed feedback. But it was enough. It was just enough to set me on that road. So, I mean, I got 121 rejections before I had a book published. So, you know, it didn't come overnight for me. I was somebody who had to work at it. And maybe the language is part of that, finding my voice as a as a non-native speaker. But yeah, good question.
0: Well, thank you for that. Um, no, it's, it's really, I think it's really interesting, <laughs> like, uh, as we said, like, and uh, as you mentioned as well in Scottish by Inclination, even if you're uh, from another country, you can give so much here. Uh, there's so many opportunities in Scotland as well, probably. So um, can you tell me a bit more about maybe the other voices that you had in um, Scottish by inclinations? because it's much something about you, but at the same time you have snapshots of life from um, other people that have come here and have made it. So uh, mm-hmm. what about the opportunities and... Um, Um, Yeah, the diversity that comes with it.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, actually, the idea for Scottish by Inclination didn't include me at all. Like when I pitched it to the publishers, I um, I basically said, you know, I would like to write a book. 30 profiles of uh, 30 EU immigrants who've come into Scotland and made it their home and made a contribution to life here. And um, I really wanted a variety. You know, there are lots of um, academics, for example, but I wanted some very ordinary people to... And um, so that's how I pitched it to the publishers. And they said, oh, yeah, you know, good idea, Barbara. We like the sound of it. But actually, you need to give a reader something to make them read through the whole book. Otherwise, it's just like a series of little um, articles like you would find in a newspaper. That's not really a book that you'd want to read all the way through. So you need to give them a reason to read through it. So I said, "Okay. so what's your idea for that? And they said, what about a chapter about you? Um, or or kind of an autobiographical element and I said absolutely not and said no thank you and walked away from this and uh, it took about a week before I kind of realised that um, I don't know I suppose I had it in my head that if I wrote about myself I um, would somehow have to I don't know, give everything away, tell tell my everything, all the secrets, everything, and then um, compromise the privacy of my friends and my family. But actually, that wasn't the case at all. And um, I found it easier than I'd expected. But for me still, you know, the best part of that book is all the varied stories of um, you know, the, the, the people who've come to Scotland. You know, you've know you got a serial entrepreneur who is the father of the violinist, uh, Nicola Benedetti. So he's Joe Benedetti, really interesting man um, and such an interesting history. When he arrived um, many decades before me, um, he, he faced such sectarianism in Glasgow. It was such an interesting perspective and he has such a positive can-do attitude You know, there was a German beer brewer in the centre of Glasgow. There is a Czech-born physiotherapist in Perthshire. You know, I've got a general practitioner who works on the very north coast of Scotland uh, in what most people would consider quite a remote place. But he's filling a vacancy um, that, you know, may otherwise lie empty. And he's made a huge contribution uh, to society there. And, um, you know, just all around Scotland, um, you know, one of the people who I found very interesting was a politician. So he's a Frenchman who um, worked as a sort of, you know, in a variety of jobs. But um, he became interested in Scottish independence and became an SNP councillor and then an SNP member of the Scottish Parliament. Um, despite the fact that he's not a British citizen, he's a French citizen. Um, And when somebody challenged him on this, um, he simply answered, well, I don't see you volunteering to do it. Um, And uh, I thought it was a good comeback and a fair question, you know. Um, So I suppose the thing that really struck me, particularly amid the discourse of, um, you know, Nigel Farage and the whole Brexit campaign, um, you know, the, the Leave campaign, there was just an implication somehow or insinuation that uh, immigration was this big evil that we just needed to stop and i felt like i wanted to give a, a sort of counter argument and make the case for european immigration as a very positive thing for scotland and i think that um with each and every one of these people um you know i was able to to do that a little more you know so you've got the Uh, Principal of Glasgow University, for example, an Italian man, uh, you know, a a lecturer who's doing groundbreaking work in uh, children and migration uh, called Professor Daniela Stein from Romania. There are artists, um, there are business people, there are crafters and one of my favourite people, and actually I'm going to get to meet him next month for the first time properly, uh, was a school librarian, um, a Cypriot, and he... um, was also he just sort of mentioned it in the past and going oh yeah I used to coach the Scottish national side for volleyball I was like (laughs) you know spluttering my teeth but you did what you know I was interviewing him as a librarian who was inspiring children to read and uh, no he was also uh, an international level uh, volleyball coach. Uh, so yeah, I mean these these stories were just amazing. I got to talk to the lady who um, was behind the Princess Street statue of Wojtek the Bear, and um, you know a great campaigner for Scottish-Polish relations. Yeah, I just feel like I've learned so much in the process of putting that book together, and I think writing my own story was kind of the easiest thing, really. Um, I think the work was in meeting and finding and talking to all these people and I enjoyed every minute of it.
0: No, that's great. I'm thinking if this process of researching for the book has at all made you come to terms with your, come to terms, made you make peace with your own German identity a bit more.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it has maybe, yeah. Um, I do think Brexit was a watershed moment for many Europeans and in, um, in the UK, um, and I think that, I suppose, for me, I, I had my language and my 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 country was something worth celebrating, and. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I grew up in uh, in a Germany where history teaching was still dominated by the Second World War. And let's never let that happen again. And, you know, there was almost a degree of shame when I came out of school um, about how you feel about your home country. And uh, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think, you know, it, it's important to confront uh, these things head on. Um, But yeah, I suppose I had a little bit of a chip in my shoulder. And yes, maybe the process of writing this book has kind of eased it out a little bit.
0: grand and I'm thinking well going from your the your latest book Scottish by inclination which is your first non-fiction book am I correct
1: yeah that's right
0: so how did you well uh, you are your background is in children's literature and historic fiction mostly so how did you get into that particular genre and also historic fiction I think it's something that I wouldn't normally probably associate with the children's literature so how mm. do you uh, how do you get into that genre and how do you make it approachable for kids to get into history and just be passionate mm. about it
1: oh five questions at once well um so I um I got into nonfiction by complete accident so my first children's book was the result of the Expo North Tweet Pitch. Um, So Expo North is a Highland-based organisation and they champion uh, crafters, writers, musicians, filmmakers. It's a creative kind of support uh, organisation. And they run a tweet pitch for writers in January, or they have done for the last few years. So I read about this and at that point I was a bit of a... um, a conscientious objector to social media, I wasn't on Facebook, I wasn't on Twitter, and I didn't particularly want to join that world. But it, but, you know, let's face it, I wasn't getting anywhere with my manuscripts and my submissions. So I thought, oh, I'll give it a go, and I tweeted um, a pitch for each of my unpublished books. And uh, my first book, Fairful Luck which was a historical novel for children, um, was was picked up that way, and that was my first publication contract so the same publishers then went on to publish you know all of my children's books six of them and um, yes I suppose because I was a historical fiction writer with my first book um, you know I, I kind of realized that that's maybe where I was at my best and um, I just love being transported to to different places and different times and I suppose I think that the past for me is the most interesting country of all, because actually we can see where we come from as well. And um, yeah, so I um, i mean, I still write a variety of genres, but uh, historical fiction is what interests me. And um, even though I find it slightly daunting because you might get something wrong and somebody might uh, pick you up on it, and so far, I fared quite well with asking some experts to read over my work and, um, and just asking if there's any um, errors or clangers in there. So, and I suppose actually it's something that I quite enjoy is to think about how to, uh, how to bridge uh, this gap uh, for children and how to make them interested because it's a fast-paced Adventure story, like in the past, children, you know, uh, were very often left to their own devices and they had to be grown up and adults before their time and, um, you know, often that gives them real agency and it means that they can do things that kids nowadays just couldn't get away with, you know, and hey, no mobile phones, you know, if somebody's missing, you can't just pick up a phone, you know, you're going to have to go find them or, you know, whatever. So um, I think there's a little bit more potential for adventure, which is the kind of stories that I like to write. So, but I do like to have a real historical event or a real historical person at the heart of it. Um, it's kind of like a watching line. I often use that analogy, even in my own uh, mind, you know, so your fixed points, you know, the facts, the real things, they are the pegs. But in between, your watching can flutter and, um, you know, blow in the wind, whichever way the wind of the imagination blows it. And uh, for me, that image really works. So that's why historical fiction. Yeah, I I suppose I was noticing that um, I then took part in every tweet pitch since then. There's another one uh, tomorrow as we're recording on the 21st of January, actually, um, will be the next uh, Exponov tweet pitch. And uh, I don't know, I just find it exciting to see all these writers pitch work and publishers going, ooh, we like that or whatever. It's exciting to watch because you know that as a result of that, a year after, there may be some books out there that wouldn't have seen the light of day otherwise. Um, so I just pitched this, on the back of all my Brexit anger and frustration with the political process, um, I, I pitched this idea of 30 profiles of EU immigrants to Scotland and the positive contribution that they've made and um, yeah, I got a little bit of publishers' interest and uh, Lula Press took the book on, which is why um, that was published last uh, last year, just on the fifth anniversary of the actual Brexit vote.
0: Okay, no, that's uh, I love the analogy of the washing line. It's a, it's such a vivid image, and it's just really nice to think about it as a. Um, base for a story um what do you find your inspiration from for your historic novels as well like I mean of course you want a historic uh, factual event mm. at the base of it so uh i know a bit of the story about for instance for fear for luck so can you maybe uh, tell me a bit more about how that grew and uh, how you found
1: other inspirations afterwards absolutely yeah um i mean most of the time i don't go oh now i need inspiration for a book so you know what can I write about I don't get to that point I just uh, keep my eyes open all the time and uh, even now I'm, I'm writing two things at the moment um, but I've already got uh, another three things waiting in the wings ready to think about and to read about and to figure out um, Luck was my first historical one, like all my other unpublished books before that were um, sort of contemporary or fantasy. And um, it was something that I came across on holiday. We went to the north coast of Scotland as a family and we came across Bean Beach. And uh, above it, I could see on the hillside lots of rocks lying together as if they were ruins. And I wasn't sure what that was. So I just said to my husband, "Look, do you mind if I just go and explore a little bit? And everybody was happy, three children running around on the beach, my dog running around and my husband was chilling and it was all good. And I went up and had a look and um, actually it turned out to be a bit of a sort of tourist path, like a proper organized walk with like signs and information displays and so on. And um, it talked about, you know, the, the landscape and the plants and whatever. And then it said the Durness Riots in the corner of one of these signs and I couldn't believe it. I, you know, I was looking around, there was hardly any houses at all. And um, so I couldn't imagine that they had been riots, political riots, but it was in response to the Highland Clearances. And um, this tiny village where I was standing, you know, had started a huge um, rebellion, which actually was reported as far south as the Times newspaper in London and, and written about. Uh, so I wanted to find out more about that. And Furful Luck is really a story from the point of view of one of the girls in the village um, who who chooses to fight, who becomes the first to, to start the fight back. And um, that's not a real person. I made her up, but um, the events, And the timeline is very faithful to what actually happened. Um, And actually, uh, even even her and all the other characters, you know, I found a census document that uh, had all the actual names of villagers. So the first names and the second names, and I kind of just took all the names and threw them up in the air and made lots of new combinations. So even though, um, you know, a Janet Sutherland, like the girl in my story doesn't exist or didn't exist in the village, there was a Janet and there were Sutherlands and I just combined them differently.
0: Yeah, this one might be a very specific and quirky question, but um, I've seen that in many of your books, most of your books, I think the character is about 12 years old. Can I ask you why that, yeah. uh, that particular age? <laughs> what um, I think is quite interesting. Yeah, just uh, yeah. why 12? It's.
1: Yeah, so um, actually this is a little bit to do with uh, what's called the middle grade uh, genre. So I write middle grade fiction, which is, um, you know, the sort of trade term for the 8 to 12 year group, 9 to 12 is that. Actually, I mean, middle grade starts slightly younger with some chapter books, but I write upper middle grade and actually children read aspirationally. That means that, um, you know, research has shown that children like to read about somebody who's just a little bit older than them. So my books are for nine to 12 year olds, really. And um, by making my hero or my heroine 12 years old, um, it, it is that sweet spot where they can just about imagine that that person is them. But it's not yet here. 12 or 13 possibly 11 if you're writing for a slightly lower um year group and i think that for me i just seem to be very in touch with my inner 12 year old (laughs) and i find it very easy to to identify with the 12 year old kind of on the cusp of adulthood you know you're, you're given responsibility and in the past you would have been responsible for your own affairs or had a job or you know, being trusted in, in the book that is out in um, in May, you know, my boy is a messenger and he runs literally 15, 20 miles on his own through dangerous country uh, to pass on messages and letters and so on. And um, so, yeah, I think, you know, in the past, a 12 year old would have been a sort of almost mini adult. And, and that's what appeals to me about that age.
0: And I'm also thinking how, well, you've moved to the Highlands. How does the Uh, environment and nature of the highlands inspire you as well because you've also written an an eco novel as well so how um how does that inspire you
1: yeah well with wilderness was it's easy because um do you know that's my eco thriller it's a it's a present day story um but it has got a bit of magic realism in it in the sense that nature fights back in the book. And um, so I suppose it's, um, you know, it's all around, you and know, I really value it. And I valued it so much more during lockdowns and extended periods when many other activities were impossible because of the pandemic. And um, I was just so appreciative of living in the highlands and being able to get myself to beautiful places very easily. Um, So I think, yes, we need to protect our wild places and uh, that inspires me. I suppose the other thing that uh, really inspires me about the landscape is that it hasn't really necessarily changed that much in some places. Um, So I can imagine that Bonnie Prince Charlie would have been running and hiding in the same hills that I'm looking at now and they wouldn't have looked so different, you know. Um, So I think that's very easy to bridge and... um, In my forthcoming book, that'll uh, be something that plays a major role. Um, you know, the idea of, of hiding in the wilderness is, is a big theme of that novel. Um, but for the past, I mean, there are crumbling castles everywhere. The Siege of Calabarok, which has just won uh, a prize. Actually, I, I don't normally win prizes, but I did uh, win a prize this time around from the Historical Association, a Young Quill Award uh, for the Siege of Calabarok. And um, it's, it was a castle ruin and I visited with my family and I was smitten by this castle. And um, I saw something in the displays about a siege where the King of England marched across the border, 3,000 soldiers and um, massive entourage. And um, he laid siege to this castle, which only had 60 people in it. And actually all the men were away pretty much because they were negotiating, trying to find allies for if the King should cross the border. Of course he did. And, um, you know, this poor lady of the castle, a uh, young newly married woman, um, was suddenly in charge and um, had to respond to this unbelievable threat. And I, th- I thought, what a fantastic story. Uh, I want to write that.
0: Oh, yeah, and I-, I think that also, going back to the law for history and passing that on as well, um, I know that you are involved into an initiative called Time Channelers. So can I ask you a bit more about it and how it came about and what's your aim with it at this?
1: Yeah, I love the Time Channelers. It's a little group of us and um, so we are um, historical writers for children. So I was already friendly uh, with one of them and uh, she gave me a cover quote actually for one of my books for the, the Burns novella called Blackwater, uh, Ali Sherrick and I really, really like her writing. Um, excellent author and she... Um, had kind of run an idea past me. She just said that she was uh, working on this idea of maybe getting a few historical fiction writers together. And initially the idea was that the five of us, so it's um, it's myself, um, Ali Cherick, um, Catherine Randall, Jeannie Wadby, and uh, Susan Brownrigg. So all these uh, writers write historical fiction. And uh, you know, some have many book sides. some of them uh, are a bit newer on the scene. We're kind of a good little mix, really. And um, and yeah, the idea was to have a collaborative blog. But then we realized that actually our reach would probably be bigger if we also tapped into YouTube. So we do a weekly creative writing challenge aimed at schools. And um, so schools can use a little video to inspire their youngsters to write uh, something inspired by history in some way and um, so yeah uh, every Thursday there's a new blog post on the time tunnelers and then there's a new uh, video out already so in fact my one went live today um on Robert Burns and uh, his day job as an excise man which meant that he had to fight smugglers so that's what I was working on earlier in the week but no it's a great little um, community and uh, you know sometimes I think that um writers have this weird idea that because we are all writers we have to somehow be in competition with each other and i just think it's completely the wrong way around i think as writers if somebody else uh, succeeds that's good for me because um you know it creates readers and uh, those readers will want um, more food for their imagination and hopefully eventually they'll they'll choose one of mine, you know. I think that we are shooting ourselves in the foot if we guard ourselves too tightly. I think collaboration is the way forward on every level.
0: Yes, and I, I'm thinking also, well, of course, this has been quite a bizarre time in terms of uh, getting people into reading probably with the pandemic so maybe more people got into reading and maybe uh, do you think that more young people as well uh, got the opportunity to get more into reading as well
1: i think so i think um you know schools for a start were really scrambling for things to to give their pupils to do um, during the lockdowns when schools were not in person. Um, So yeah, I think that uh, there was a lot of uh, relying on on books and on reading and on stories, but also on online content like YouTube and so on. And I think a lot of writers tapped into that and made good use of building links in in that time, making uh, materials available for free and engaging with schools. One of the big downsides for people like me, I make most of my money on the writing side with live events. So um, my kind of school visits that I would do during the year or festival visits I would probably do about 50 plus events in a year all around Scotland and sometimes beyond and uh, all of a sudden that ground to a complete halt like nothing was happening and um, you know online events only take you so far um, and, and actually many schools weren't really sure how to um, make good use of those so it was kind of Uh, I think I'm so glad to see now that that's picking up again because I enjoy that, uh, you know, physically attending an assembly and telling youngsters about uh, writing and and the books and what inspired them. Um, So, yeah, I think, yes, more people have engaged with reading. I think a lot of adults fell back in love with reading. Um, But I also think that, you know, there is fertile ground now for us to really build on. I think actually you will find that most children's book uh, publishers have seen increases in sales despite the lockdown. Uh, I don't think it's been the other way around, mostly.
0: It's always good to have a look at silver linings in all of this as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Yes, and you mentioned that you have a few, a couple of projects on. So can you tell me about your future releases and projects?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so I'm not sure how officially I can talk about some of this, but I am allowed to say that I have a Jacobite book coming out um, in May. Uh, It's going to be with Lewis Press, um, so the date for publication is still to be confirmed, so that might still shift ever so slightly, but... uh, yeah, so that's exciting. And then um, I have another book um, in the pipeline with my other my, my publisher, Sofa Cranachan, for the children's fiction. And uh, there is also another non-fiction project for, um, for adults uh, on the go. Uh, this is with a different publisher still. And. Um, I mean, provisionally, it's called uh, Labour of Love, um, which is about people who've made really drastic choices to pursue uh, what they really care about. Um, But it's not a sort of make the big jump and then you'll live happily ever after kind of book. Um, It's a sort of what's and all, these are the challenges, let's be real about this, um, and so on and so on. But it's, uh, oh my goodness, you wouldn't believe the amount of super inspiring people that I got to talk to this year um, and I've just submitted it so fingers crossed the publishers like it and uh, are happy to proceed with it but uh, that's what I've been working on so now I'm um, straddling two manuscripts uh, something to do with Mary Queen of Scots which I'm halfway through and then something set in, uh, in London actually so that's a huge departure from what I normally do uh, and that is for slightly younger readers so fingers crossed for all of that. But actually with writing, I think the top tip for me is don't hold on to anything too tightly because, you know, you can spend a year writing a book and then actually you, you may struggle to place it with a publisher. So always have the next thing on the go, you know, so that, that you're not disappointed when something doesn't work out. So I, I'm always looking for the next thing. And uh, I think my brain works like that anyway. I quite like a new challenge.
0: No, that's great and you have so many projects on the go so you have so much energy on that so best of luck with
1: (laughs) I'm not telling you about the bits (laughs) that that don't work out you know that's the thing Uh, for every writer I think you know they tweet and they share about the things that are going well and the stuff that doesn't work out people just keep very quiet about that but I think you know, in the real world, we need to realize that um, there's always both, you know, somebody may look super successful, um, but actually, they might have had their last three ideas rejected, and that can happen. So yeah, but thank you.
0: No, yeah, best of luck with all the effort that ho- hopefully the effort will pay off. Very well, again. So, um, yeah, so I just want to end the interview today with a few questions, uh, specifically Mm -hmm. on books, of course, because you're a writer, but also a reader. So what are you reading at the moment?
1: Uh, so at the moment, a couple of things, but uh, the one that I'm, I'm really engrossed in is Shakespeare's London on five groots a day. It's kind of like a fake travel guide, uh, like think the rough guide or something but to Shakespeare's London. And uh, I'm finding that very, very fascinating. Oh, yeah, no,
0: sounds good. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. And uh, is there a book or an author that changed your life or, saw, or a book or author that has really inspired you and in your
1: writing? um yeah several so um i mean i'd probably be wrong not to mention the bible i do read my bible every day and i find that very inspiring um but also um stephen king's on writing And he talks, for example, about um, amateurs being, you know, waiting for inspiration. He says the rest of us just get up and go to work. And I like that. I'm not a believer in writer's block. I think, you know, you drag yourself to that desk and and something will come and inspiration will come or you will get through that difficult bit of the book that you're, you're having trouble with so um you know that sort of no nonsense treat it like a job, and it will pay like a job. you know what I mean that sort of philosophy was really good for me um in terms of historical fiction one of the best books for children uh, of historical fiction that I read uh, was called The Executioner's Daughter and it was set in the Terror of London um and it was about a girl whose father's job it is to, you know the captured people for henry VIII, and i just thought oh is that okay for children's books you know but it just showed me how um you know a children can handle the truth and be you know how you can still weave a child-friendly and inspiring story um against what might be quite a daunting background so um and it's a fabulous book honestly i'd really recommend it it transformed how i saw historical fiction i thought of it as tame and boring and it is the opposite so um yeah that was a big moment for me i suppose
0: you mentioned that you have to drag yourself uh, to work even as a writer and don't wait for inspiration is there any ritual um that you have to put yourself in the right mindset to write?
1: Not so much. I tend to start in the morning. I'm better in the morning. And, um, you know, but actually because I have three children and, um, you know, a family and a job <laughs> it's quite difficult my, my uh part-time teaching at the moment is only two days a week and that means that I've got three solid days to write or to do school visits and so on um but yeah I mean before that you just have to take any moment you can get and and make it count so um I suppose I never felt that I really had the luxury for a ritual that had to happen I do need coffee I should say and I, I do need coffee and uh, often I do sit um at a desk um or my preferred way probably is to start in a cafe. So I'll take my laptop and start in a place that isn't my own house, where I can't look at the washing up in the corner or the washing piling up, um, and then get started. And then actually, once I'm in the zone, once I'm um, I'm running with it, then I find it much easier to come home and carry on um, working. But often. You know, if I'm struggling to really get into it at my own desk where I'm sitting right now, then, um, you know, I find it easier to go and go to a cafe. And I suppose by paying for a coffee or for an Earl Grey tea or something, um, you know, it makes me feel like I need to earn my, my reason to be there. So that makes me work harder, I think, um, less distractions.
0: Yeah, no, it sound perfectly makes sense. I can, I can kind of relate. I feel like, yeah, when you have home working, yeah. it's like okay, you need a different environment sometimes just yeah. to get you out of. And well, mm-hmm. last question: as a reader, do you have a favorite place where to, where you like to read? Like an ideal place where you like to read?
1: I think two two separate ideal places. Um, if it's a sunshiny day in early summer or something, I love a bench by a river somewhere. Um, but uh not too public you know if lots of people are walking past me then that will be distracting but yeah I can't be cold so it really has to be warm uh warm enough for me to enjoy that um and actually on the same theme of I can't be cold um in Scotland for I would say 95% of the time my favorite place to write is in front of the fire so we've got a little wood burning stove and uh when that thing's on then you know get a wee candle on um you know snuggle down and, and just read a book there and ideally not lasting at night because I, I mean I do read every time before I fall asleep but I, I just find that I'm so knackered sometimes at the end of the day but uh, I'm not taking it in properly so it's it's such a gift to be able to read uh, in the middle of the day when you still have a few functioning brain cells <laughs> that's my favorite place yeah I'd say
0: That's fantastic. Thank you so, so much for being on Northern Bibliosphere today. And uh, yeah, all the best with everything. And uh, I will give you, I will leave the notes of all the books recommended and your contact details for some of the projects in the notes for the podcast. So um, you can find them there. So uh, yes, thank you so much and have a lovely day.
1: Thank you so much, Federica. It's been really fun to chat to you. Thank you for having me. And I can't wait to hear the podcast. Exciting times. See you later and have a good day. See you.
0: Bye, everyone. So that's us for today. I really hope you enjoyed this chat with Barbara as much as I did and hopefully found some inspiration and some useful book tips as well. If you want to know more about her work and projects, you'll find some useful information and links in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening to one of our very first episodes and join us next week as we turn to another page of literature in the north of Scotland. If you like the show, please share it with your friends, tag us on social media or leave a review where you listen to your podcasts. It really helps us reach more book lovers around the world. And if you have an author, book or literary project that you would like featured on our podcast, drop us an email at northernbibliospherepod at gmail.com or get in touch on our social channels. Have a great weekend.